Well, just in case you have missed the last few weeks, let me very quickly get you up to speed on the story so far. Nehemiah is a fantastic story about a great city, a bit like our city, and in it there is a great need. Again, a bit like a need that we're facing here in our city. The city has been in neglect for quite some time, and the community of God's people within that city has been in steep decline for many, many generations. And so God calls a man named Nehemiah to relocate to that city, to build the city, to serve the city, and to restore God's people. However, as is often the case, when people try to do great exploits for God, Nehemiah is immediately met with opposition. As we began to see last time, Nehemiah shows incredible leadership and wisdom in navigating all of the conflict and controversy. As a result, a lot of the external opposition to the work of God dies down. Now, you kind of expect that the people would then all pull together and make cracking momentum and progress. But as we're going to see today, that's not quite what happens. You see, what often happens at times when it's all hands to the decks, when everyone's working incredibly hard to try and build something, the cracks begin to show. The disgruntled murmurings and complaints beneath the surface begin to come out. People start to feel the pain. The cost begins to kick in. And it has the potential to completely derail the work. That was the problem facing Nehemiah, and I'd suggest it remains a problem today. The truth is that the greatest threat to the health and well-being of Christianity in general, and this church in particular, is us, is you and me. It is those of us who participate, who are committed to the life of this church. And it's always been that way. For all the external opposition that Nehemiah faced, the thing that ultimately threatened to halt all the work was actually an internal problem. Perhaps you could turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I want to pray, because the message I'm going to bring today isn't necessarily a light one. Some of the words are maybe going to be a little confrontational and hard, and really my spirit in doing it is one of love. And even as we've been celebrating the love of God, and that's been underlined even as we've worshipped, I believe God in His love wants to just open our eyes to some truth today. But for us to receive those words and to receive them in love, I'm going to pray and ask for God to help us. Holy Spirit, You are so incredibly welcome here. We so love your presence. We, we, we so love the way you come alongside us and encourage us. Thank you, you come and you open our minds to understand truth. You come and guide us, you lead us. And you also convict us. You also turn a spotlight onto our lives and highlight things that need to change. Not to condemn us, but so that we can become more like Jesus. And that's our desire. So Holy Spirit, would you come and move amongst us? Where there are things that you just see that you want us to change, would you bring them to light today? Where maybe we're struggling to see how we could change, would you give us power to live differently? Where those are here who are just hopeless in their situation, 
Spirit of God, would you minister hope that would leave here encouraged and built up and strengthened, more determined to live to the glory of God. That's what I ask. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 5. The chapter's broken down into three main sections. First of all, there's the problem. Second, we see the response to the problem. Third, we get some of the personal application. Let's look at the first section, the problem. We'll start reading in verse 1. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to try and get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we're of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards now belong to others. Let's pause there. Here's what's going on. Here's the problem. It's a financial crisis. That's what's going on here. First of all, there's a famine. It's been a dreadful drought. People are literally starving to death. They're hungry. Times are tough. It's a dreadful recession. Secondly, in an understandable effort to borrow money to try and live through this hardship, the people have ended up trying to leverage anything they've got. Now, back then, their whole livelihood would have come primarily through agriculture, but they've been forced into selling their fields, their vineyards, pretty much everything. So they now have no means of income anymore. Thirdly, the government, on top of all of that, had imposed massive taxes. Now, of course, nowadays, people respond by racking up credit card debt. Like they take out multiple credit cards, get all the loans they can, max, max them all out. Let me just say, by way of an aside, none of that's wise. It, it almost always ends up in you becoming a slave to your debt. I don't want that for any of you. But in Nehemiah's day, they didn't even have those options. They didn't have credit cards. They also didn't have a benefit system of any kind. So if you were in financial difficulty and you had nothing else to sell, the only course of action left to you was literal slavery. You'd be forced to sell yourself, your kids, as slaves. Now, all of this is going on while the people are working incredibly hard to try to rebuild the city. These people are volunteering hours and hours and hours to serve God's mission, and all the time, they're in desperate financial straits. And so, what arises is a conflict over money. And as we start to get into this, we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking in terms of rich versus poor. It's way too simplistic to think that the poor are good and the rich are bad, or vice versa. Now, the biblical way to approach this whole subject is to think in terms not so much of rich versus poor, but of righteousness and unrighteousness. So, first of all, then, there are righteous rich people. I don't know, they earn their money in a righteous way. They worked hard, invested wisely, 
and God has blessed them. And then they've distributed their money, their wealth, their possessions in a righteous way. They tithe, they give, they're generous. They pay their bills, take care of their family, they help widows, orphans, those in need. They're righteous. Plenty of examples of people in the Bible and in the world today who are like that. But sadly, not everyone's like that. There are also plenty of people who are rich and unrighteous. They get their money through crooked business practices, ripping people off, taking shortcuts, doing things they shouldn't. Or when they get their money, they are greedy, they're stingy, they're not generous. Maybe they don't pay their bills, they take advantage of their employees, don't pay all their taxes. They're they're not generous towards others. These are people who are unrighteous with their money. There are also people who are righteous and poor. They work hard, but maybe only get the minimum wage. Maybe they're widows, single mums, kids with no dad. They're poor and they're righteous. Maybe they love God, they're working hard or they want to work hard. They're doing everything they can. They're they're spending their money wisely. They're certainly not being frivolous or extravagant. They're not in sin. They're just poor. Jesus Christ himself was working class poor. Nothing wrong with that. There are also those, however, that are not just poor, they're also unrighteous. They're lazy. They refuse to work. Proverbs calls them sluggards. They just don't like getting out of bed in the morning. These are people who are always looking for the latest get-rich-quick scheme, a scam, a shortcut, anything that means they don't have to work hard. And as and when they get some money, well, they just blow it all in unrighteous ways. So, if you're poor and you resent those who are richer than you, or if you're rich and just think poverty is down to laziness, you've got to rethink. You've got to say, well, some rich people are righteous and some poor people are righteous. And there are some who are poor and rich who are unrighteous. Now, the situation, coming back to Nehemiah 5, the situation facing Nehemiah here is sadly that the unrighteous rich are taking advantage of the righteous, the godly poor. Those who have power and money and influence, for some reason, are taking advantage of the poor who love the Lord and find themselves in hard circumstances through no fault of their own. That's the problem. question begs to be answered. How will Nehemiah respond to this? Let's look at his response. Verse 6, Nehemiah says, When I heard the outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Some of you may be thinking, well, is that really a Christian way to respond? I think it is. Anger can be good. It's not always good, but there are times when anger is the right and appropriate response. You see, we were created, we were made in the image and likeness of God. And one of the emotions, one of the attributes of God is anger. The Bible says more than 800 times that God has wrath. That is God's anger being outworked. In Exodus 34, where God kind of tells us who he is, this is how he introduces himself. 
he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God is a patient, loving, gracious, merciful God. He is slow to anger, but there are things that move him to anger. Things like sin, and injustice, and oppression, and evil. Some people say, well, surely that's just the God of the Old Testament. Now, quite apart from the fact that this suggests that God was in some way wrong back then, and subsequently has seen the error of his ways, which is just absurd, there were occasions in the New Testament, weren't there, where Jesus himself clearly was moved to anger. For example, there was the famous incident when he arrived, when he visited the temple. They're, they're, they're ripping people off in the name of God. Interestingly, there's another financial scam going on. And Jesus walks in, he rebukes the money changers, ransacks the temple. I mean, he is angry. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 says, in your anger, do not sin. He doesn't say, don't get angry. He says, as you get angry, don't sin. Because anger is what God sometimes feels. And if you have God's heart, sometimes you will feel angry. You have to. The question is, what are you going to do with your anger? Ephesians 4 says, you can let your anger lead you into sin. Some of you have done that. I don't know, you get furious, type the email, send the text. Five minutes later, you're like, that wasn't such a good idea. I really shouldn't have done that. Or you leave the voicemail, you're yelling down the phone, giving them a piece of your mind. Ten minutes later, when you've calmed down a little, you're thinking, I reckon I might just have made things a whole lot worse. If you get angry for the wrong reasons, or if you express your anger in the wrong way, I don't know, it's unrighteous anger, it's just an uncontrolled explosion, it's a personal attack on someone, it's more down to issues in you than what God thinks, the whole motivation is wrong, then it's sin, and you must repent of it. But if it's righteous anger, because God feels angry, and you have the heart of God, the question isn't, how do I try and suppress my anger? No, the question is, how do I positively direct my anger towards redemption, towards healing, towards restoration, towards change? Please, don't get rid of your anger if it's righteous, if it's stirred by things that anger God, oppression, injustice, evil, wickedness, it has the potential to be a good, powerful, motivating, inspiring force. A lot of social change down through history occurred through godly people getting God's heart for the situation they're facing, feeling the injustice, getting angry, and doing something positive to change it. And that's certainly what we see happening 
here in Nehemiah chapter 5. The people are saying, this is wrong. We're not going to put up with this any longer. And Nehemiah says, I agree. Something needs to be done. But he doesn't just rush off into anger. Here's what he does. Verse 7, he says, I pondered them. I pondered these things in my mind. You know, sometimes when you get angry, your first response isn't particularly good. How many of you get angry, but your initial instinct in anger isn't great? Anyone recognize that in your life? One, two, three, four, hands going up all over the place. They're bold enough to confess because others have. You, you can relate to this. So what should you do? You need to think before you speak. You need to engage brain before you act. We don't know how long Nehemiah took to do this. Hours, days, I don't know. But he pondered his response. My anger. First question, is it righteous or unrighteous? I think it's righteous. Okay, do I feel what God feels? Yeah, I think I do. Okay, now what am I going to do? I mean, I can't just blow my top, can't just go out and pick a fight. I need to think about what I'm going to do with this righteous indignation that I'm feeling. I need to consider the options. Verse 7, Nehemiah says, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Nehemiah, he's appealing to them on two levels. First of all, he reminds them that they really should fear God. He's saying, don't you know who you're dealing with here? It's one thing facing my anger, it's quite another thing facing God's anger. You are going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for all your actions. He will judge you and it's within his power to send you to hell. So shouldn't you be walking in the fear of God? And then secondly, he also reminds them that the nations around them are watching their very move, every move. He's saying, what we're building here is to be a witness, an example to the world. I mean, what good is all of our effort, all of this hard work rebuilding the walls if we don't treat each other in a loving, gracious and just way? I mean, what kind of witness are we going to have? No one is going to want to come and worship the God of the Bible if the people who claim to believe in him are just mistreating one another. I'd appeal to you in exactly the same way. You must fear God. You must fear God. I love the time of worship we had earlier, celebrating the love of God. 
enjoying some of the benefits of this salvation which he has freely given us. Not by our works, not us trying to pay him back or earn stuff from him. In his grace, just lavished on us. We love the love of God. But we mustn't allow that to disguise the fact that God is also a holy and fearsome God. And we need to keep both things in tension. Enjoy the love of God whilst humbly walking in fear before him. We must fear our God. And also, we must see that our witness is so much more important than our petty differences. If we have kind of squabbles amongst ourselves, potential to fall out with one another, we must deal with them. We must put them to bed. We must say no more. I'll witness the example to those around who are watching in saying, how are they different from us? How does their relationship, their faith in God change the way they interact with one another? We must ensure our relationships are good. We must be reminded that others are watching our every move. Our witness is so important. Nehemiah continues. And this is perhaps the most astonishing an exemplary verse in the whole book of Nehemiah. Verse 10. He says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses. And also the interest that you're charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. Now here's the question. Was Nehemiah guilty of the same sin that he was rebuking others of committing? I think he was. I think the implication here is that Nehemiah had his own little side business where he was lending money and charging interest and himself taking advantage of vulnerable poor people, just like those he was confronting. And so what he does is he publicly repents. Now, whether you're a parent with your children, or a leader in your business, or a leader in this church, or in some other sphere, or some other context, I really can't stress enough what a key lesson in leadership this is. People don't expect their leaders necessarily to be perfect, but they do need to be able to trust them. And the only way they can trust them is if they admit their mistakes and apologise for them where necessary. And I know it's not easy, and I know it requires a tremendous amount of humility, but we can't just tell other people what's wrong in their life, we need to also confess our own sin where appropriate. We can't tell people to do things that we ourselves are unwilling to model and demonstrate. Let me ask you, How many of you have found that the people who most anger you in reality are just like you? And maybe what infuriates you, irritates you the most about them is they're doing what you do. I wonder how many of you have been like that. I don't know. The kids are yelling at each other and you say to them, stop yelling! It's like, that probably wasn't the best way to go about it. 
I mean, scream at the kids to stop screaming. And so you say something like, do as I say, not as I do. That's not a great mentality. It's not going to win a whole lot of respect. Or maybe you're on the phone and you're gossiping away. And then it kind of dawns on you that you're currently very miffed with someone else for gossiping about you. As Nehemiah begins to rebuke those who are in sin, he does an inventory of his own life and he ends up humbly confessing, I'm guilty too. It's not just you guys, it's me as well. We all need to repent and change. You know, there has to be humility and repentance among God's people. And it has to begin with God's leaders. And sadly, those of us who are spiritual leaders are sometimes the first to proclaim repentance and the very last to practice repentance. I love Nehemiah, not because he's perfect and sinless. Now, what we need is humble leaders who love and obey God and proceed boldly and courageously. And when they sin, repent humbly. That's what we need. Nehemiah repents. He acknowledges his own sin. What about everyone else? What about all those he's gathered together for this meeting? Well, verse 12, we see their response. They said, we'll give it back and we'll not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and I made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And I also shook out the folds of my robe and I said, in this same way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So thirdly then, let's look at the personal application in all of this. I want us to look at the process the people go through. It starts off with conviction. As Nehemiah brought this accusation, verse 8 says they kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. It's like they knew they were in the wrong. Now the Bible's pretty clear that we're all in the wrong. We're all sinners. Romans 3.22 puts it pretty explicitly. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8 adds that if you say you're not a sinner, basically you're just a liar. You are a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. The question is, what are we going to do about it? I'll tell you a couple of things you could do. You could deny it. You could say, I didn't do it. Or you could blame someone else. I wouldn't have punched them if they didn't make me. You could blame someone else. Or you could blame your genetic makeup. It's just the way I'm wired. I can't do anything about it. I'm powerless to change. You could blame. You could excuse. You could deny. Or you could follow the example of the people here in Nehemiah chapter 5. They were convicted and so they confessed. Confession is simply where we agree with God. We say, you know what, 
God says it's wrong, I agree, I was wrong. That's why John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. He'll purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession is pretty much where we just call it what it is. God, I've sinned. God, you say it's wrong, I agree with you. I'm not going to blame anyone else. I'm not going to try and make excuses, not going to deny it, not justify myself. I'm I'm just going to agree with your appraisal of the situation. Now, a lot of people think that's all you need to do, but it's not. You're going in the right direction, but you're not quite there yet. You're convicted. God does that. You confess. That's how you should respond. But then what you need to do is repent. Repentance is basically where you stop. You knock it off. You, you go and sin no more. So the people, they follow Nehemiah's own example. They say, we're going to stop ripping other people off now. We're going to stop enslaving their children. We're going to stop taking advantage of others. You see, it's not actually enough to simply say sorry. You've also got to stop doing it. You can't say, oh, I got drunk again and drove and wrecked the car again. You've got to actually, somewhere along the line, stop doing it. You can't just say, well, we slept together, we're not married, I shouldn't have done it. Oh no, I did it again. I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done it. Oh no, I've done it again, and again, and I've done it again. No, 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 you stop doing it. You knock it off. That's repentance. You change with God's help, with his strength, by his empowering grace. You put to death your sins. You go and live a different life. You go live a new way. But even that isn't enough. What we see here in Nehemiah 5 is that genuine repentance also leads to restitution. It leads to paying back those we've wronged. The evidence that we are truly repentant is they do everything they do to put right what they've done wrong. The people here, they they gave back what they'd taken. Now, I guess for some of us, the restitution part may involve a pretty steep price, but it is the right thing to do. For example, you can't borrow your friend's car, put a huge dent in it, bring it back. They spot it and say, there's a dent in my car. And you say, whoa, 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 Jesus died on the cross for all my sins. I'm free in Christ. You can't do that. You can't steal from someone, repent, and then not offer to pay them back. You can't do that. You, you can't tell a lie about someone or gossip about them. You can't destroy their reputation and just say, well, yeah, I agree. Sorry, that was bad. I've done the wrong thing. No, 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 you've got to go to the people involved and say, look, what I said about that person, that wasn't true. I sinned. I need you to know the truth. Otherwise, all you've done is you've ripped someone off and now they're broke. You've broken something they own and you're not fixing it. You've destroyed their reputation in some way and you are doing absolutely nothing to repair it. Really, all you're saying is, well, I've confessed, I've repented, wash my hands of it, I'm going to move on, but I'm going to leave you in that mess. That's not a great way to live. Jesus Christ 
died on the cross for all of our sins. We were celebrating it earlier. It's true. You confess your sins, he will forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Your relationship with God completely restored. But then a big part of that relationship includes being an agent of transformation, of reconciliation, of redemption, of change. If you made a mess, you've got to take steps to clean it up. If you've made a debt, you've got to offer to pay it off. If you've somehow ruined someone's life, you've got to try to make amends as best you can. Now, they could be gracious. They could say, no, 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 it's fine. I forgive the debt. I let it go. They have the freedom to do that, but they're not obligated to do that. I'd encourage all of you to live that way, to keep short debts, to forgive people, to let them off where appropriate. But you don't have to. So we've seen how the people with Nehemiah, they were convicted, they confessed, they repented, and they offered restitution, they offered to pay back. What's the application of all of this for us? What does it look like in our lives? Well, because I care for you deeply, I want to serve you as best I can, and because I love you, I'm going to give you some questions to go away and consider. These aren't accusations, they are just questions. I'm not looking to condemn or be mean to anyone, but I do believe that hard words sometimes can produce soft people, and that soft words just say, no, 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 everything's fine, everything's okay, when it's clearly not. That produces hard people. (coughs) These people, they got some hard words from Nehemiah, and they responded with soft hearts. I think this is so important for us as a church right now, because God's doing some great stuff among us at the moment. We've got loads of guests on our Alpha courses. A couple of weeks' time, three weeks' time, and baptize at least three people who recently have become Christians through Alpha. We're pioneering a new site up in the north of the city at Star City. When that's properly up and running and established, we're going to be looking to launch a fourth site in another part of the city. We're raising up a whole new bunch of leaders right now. God's given us some huge, huge promises, and in faith, we're straining after them with everything we've got. But all it takes to stop the work is a little bit of discord, a little bit of division, bit of disunity. We must be alert to that. So I want to urge you to honestly examine your own heart. I want to plead with you, be ruthless with any wrong attitudes or wrong practices that you find. So here are some questions to help you do that. First question, ready? Who, if anyone, are you taking advantage of? Who are you taking advantage of? I don't know, physically, sexually, emotionally, financially. Maybe they're weak, they're hurting, they don't speak up, they're in a vulnerable place. You're taking advantage of them. Who, if anyone, are you taking advantage of right now? The second question 
What's it costing them? What price are they paying for your sin? Financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually. What price are they paying? Now look, as we go through these questions, none of us likes to be convicted. But if God has brought someone to mind, a name, a face, a person, please don't resist that. Don't fight it. Don't get all defensive, all self-justifying. It wasn't my fault. I, I was young back then. I didn't mean to. It was an accident. They, they kind of deserved it. Don't do that. Just confess it. I'm taking advantage of this person. I'm doing damage. It's costing them. I don't want you just to read this story and identify with all the victims which we could easily do because I guess most of us have been victims of sin at some times. I also want you to identify with the culprits where appropriate. Because again, most of us have treated others unjustly at times. So third question, how are you going to try and repay them? How are you going to try and maybe make up for the years that you've taken or the money you've stolen, or the damage you've done, or the joy that you've robbed them of. How are you going to repay? Are you need to pray and ask God to show you? You just don't know how to do it. Ask for his wisdom. Maybe you need to ask godly people to advise you, to help you out. Fourth question. Who, if anyone, is taking advantage of you right now? Who are you allowing to take advantage of you physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually? And my fifth question is, have you spoken up yet? Have you done something about it? Have you acted like the righteous people here at the beginning of Nehemiah 5 who raised a great outcry? Have you put your foot down? Have you raised your voice? Have you said, no more? No, no, this is sin, this is wrong, this is evil, this is injustice, this must stop. I will not be manipulated anymore. This has to come to an end. I'm not going to accept this anymore. If it's a sin and they're a Christian, have you met up and raised it with them? You've had no progress with them and they're in this church. Have you brought it to the attention of the leaders of the church here? I tell you, the stakes are way too high to just let it lie. Have you spoken up yet? As we've been seeing, the specific context here in Nehemiah 5 surrounded money. So the sixth question, who do you worship? Do you worship Jesus or money? Very simple, Jesus or money. At the end of the day, would you compromise your relationship with God and his priorities for your life in order just to make a little more money? Would you compromise your integrity, your conscience for the sake of money? Who do you worship? Do you worship Jesus or money? Seventh question, nearly through. Seventh question, do you love money and use people or do you love people and use money. Now don't hear me wrong, wanting to have a whole lot of money can be a really good thing. Creates all kinds of opportunities for good 
We can use it to help fund God's work, to show love to people in need, help with their bills, give gifts, whatever. But if you love money, you'll end up using people. But if you love people, you'll use money. And that leads to my eighth and final question. Are you a good steward? Are you a good steward of what God has put into your care? Jesus says, if you have faith with just a little, I'll give you a lot. Context there is finance. Jesus looks for good stewards to trust with resources, knowing if I put resources in good stewards' hands, they're going to do good things with it. Are you a good steward with your money, with your budget, your possessions? Probably some of you are convicted because you're not the best steward. Well, confess, agree, repent, stop, and make restitution. Please, get things in order. Do what's right. So as we draw to a close, here's what I'm going to give you a chance to do. First of all, I want you to ask yourself, what, if anything, has the Holy Spirit convicted me of today? What, if anything, in my life has God put a finger on? Because he loves me and wants the best for me. And secondly, will I take this opportunity right now to confess that as sin to Jesus? Jesus, he went to the cross. He died for all of our sin, past, present and future. He will <coughs> forgive you. He'll give you the grace, the power, the strength you need to live a new life, a life of repentance. We turn away from those sinful practices and you start obeying God if you confess. And then lastly, what restitution does God want you to make? Who do you need to pay back? And I'm not talking about paying God back. I'm not talking about trying to earn his forgiveness. No, it's all a free gift. It's all of grace. But are there people that you need to call and apologise to? Are there some checks you need to write? Are there some things you need to do to put things right with others? If so, I want to urge you, do you follow the example of the people here near my, near my five? And would you do it urgently? I want to encourage you, close your eyes. I want to give you a chance to respond. A chance for you to pray to God just between him and you. Things you need to get right with him about. I urge you to do that now.